0: Again, and Welcome to the Doctor's Lounge. This is your host, Dr. Mike Karuchak. Thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, the Doctor's Lounge radio show is sponsored by the Doctor Patient Care Foundation. We are a 501c3 organization. We are devoted to empowering physicians and patients to have the freedom to make their own health care decisions unencumbered. By the interference from what I call the competitive stakeholders in healthcare, care, that would include the hospitals, that would include healthcare plans, that would include legislators, bureaucrats, and a variety of non-competitive or competitive stakeholders who don't really focus on the patient so much as they focus on their wallet. And that's just not right. The problem right now is that the practice of medicine is under siege from all of these competitive stakeholders. And as a physician, it makes it very difficult, if not impossible, to focus on the patient. So we are devoted at the Docs for Patient Care Foundation to changing that so that doctors and patients can work together, unencumbered by all of these other interference factors, all of these other requirements, to choose the best care possible for you, the patient. So welcome once again to the Doctors' Lounge. This is where you listen to the conversations that doctors have amongst themselves and with others whom we value. And you will hear a great deal of very useful information here. We don't talk so much about medicines and operations and, and that sort of scientific stuff that happens in other places. We talk about health care policy. We talk about the things that we can do to treat and fix and cure our ailing healthcare system. So with that thought in mind, we'll talk about a couple of news items first. Uh, As I record this broadcast, uh, we have just heard from the Iowa caucuses and very interesting results there with Cruz winning and uh, Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders in a dead heat. So however that turns out, each of them in the Democratic side is going to declare victory. And uh, although it is not the mission of this show or the foundation to – Make political statements. I think it's safe enough to say without getting overtly political that the results are very interesting indeed and should certainly give the pundits plenty of new stuff to talk about. But beyond that, we're not going to talk about that this morning so much. We are going to talk about some health information technology topics. And if you listen to me enough, you realize that's my focus of interest. That's probably the one thing I can contribute to this group and this show. So we're going to talk about that again Today, we're going to talk about a buzzword, and if you are in healthcare technology at all or follow this stuff at all, you know this buzzword. It's called interoperability, right? Long term, sounds very boring, sounds very kind of dry, but if you are in healthcare IT and you're not talking about interoperability right now, you are missing the boat, because that's what everyone is talking about. So uh, what is interoperability? Uh, You have to define it before you can talk about it. And the problem is the only definition or the only part of the definition that everybody agrees on is the very dry, sort of boring and interesting part. So we'll start there and hopefully get into interesting stuff very quickly. But this definition is as follows. It is the ability of different computers different networks different systems if you will to exchange information between each other so the doctor's office needs to be able to exchange information with the hospital which in turn needs to exchange information with the third party payer unfortunately needs to exchange information with other healthcare systems in other places in other markets in the event that the patient needs to travel needs to exchange information with Folks doing research, that sort of thing. And, and that's a, a pretty dull definition. It doesn't really give you much to agree with or disagree with. It's, it's so, it's so generic. But we can take it a step further and talk about what each group seems to mean beyond that basic definition. So if you look at documents put out by the government and you look at, at what's getting written up in the healthcare IT community, you see a particular vision for the concept of interoperability, which may or may not have value, let's just talk about what it is. These folks talk about things like the longitudinal health care record. Uh, you know, they, they talk about a record that's going to reflect patients' health on a continuous basis and not just reflect episodes of care. They don't like this whole episodic thing. They want to talk about continuous care where things happen every day through a connected device, through a mobile sensor, and that somehow um, that's going to have value simply because it exists as opposed to proving the value. Uh, you know, we hear about things like the patient-centered medical record. And all these things you know are so ethereal. I mean you can't disagree with them. I mean who would disagree with the concept of a patient centered medical record? The problem is when you really, you know, pick up your pen and your highlighter and try to read the stuff that they write and extract some meat from it, you find it's like you know the meringue on a pie—it just kind of vanishes into thin air. You know, it it melts in your mouth, and there's nothing left to say. Okay, what did they really say? What did they really mean? How are you going to act on this vision of a healthcare system uh, that is all sort of very top-down and and very sort of ethereal? So, I'm not sure how much value that particular definition has. Doctors, on the other hand, have a very concrete definition of what interoperative concepts should mean to them. And and we'll get to that. But first, I think I'm going to digress a little bit. I, I think obviously you've heard me talk about history lessons before. We're going to have a little history lesson right now and talk about the discovery of penicillin, which the docs in the audience Don't ruin the surprise here as to how this happened, but the the discovery of penicillin was uh, by accident. It was by Sir Alexander Fleming in London in September of 1928, almost 100 years ago. And back then, much of the research that was done was strictly observational. It was not so hypothesis driven. It wasn't so narrative driven. Uh, This was when bacteriology was first discovered. And so people were just growing bacteria in culture dishes and in bottles of broth and just sort of learning what these things do in the lab. So uh, September of 1928, uh, Dr. Alexander goes on holiday the month prior in August and takes all of his culture dishes and stacks them in the corner of the desk just to kind of be neat and give other people room to work. And I guess he was gone for a while. The accounts that I found don't really specify, but it sounds like it was for a while, perhaps the entire month of August. And so he comes back to his laboratory in London and looks at all of his culture plates and the plate on top. Uh, has a curious finding, and uh, he looks at this and says, well, hmm, that's odd. Here's my here's my staphylococcal culture, right? That's a particular kind of bug, staph aureus, right? Uh, the doctors know what that is. Uh, everyone's probably heard of MRSA, which is the scary resistant uh, strain of staphylococcus, but it's the one that infects skin, and it, it's, it's one of the obviously more common ones. But he's growing it in this Petri dish, and he has a whole bunch of dishes growing this stuff, except for one dish, one culture dish in particular, which stood out. Because in one corner of the dish, there was something else growing that wasn't the bacteria. It was not Staphylococcus. It was a mold. It was this big culture of fuzzy stuff, just like you see growing on old bread that's been sitting too long in your kitchen. But here's the curious part is there were no bacteria growing near the mold. The mold had this halo around it where nothing was growing. So, so Dr. Fleming looks at this and says, hmm, that's kind of strange. And so they start working with this particular mold right the mold 's called a penicillin is the name of the mold, which is where the name of the drug came from, and discovered that if you grow take this mold and culture it in a in a broth in a liquid medium instead of on the the y auger of, of a culture dish that it after about eight or nine days' growth that, that you get this gooey yellow stuff growing underneath it, and the gooey yellow stuff was where the magic was. Because if you take that gooey yellow stuff and drop it in a culture dish that's got bacteria in it, the bacteria don't grow. And that was the discovery of penicillin. And strikingly, they kind of skipped all the animal studies that even back then was sort of the standard of practice and just started smearing this stuff into folks' infected wounds and things. And sure enough, it worked like a charm, right? Back then, there was no resistance to antibiotics because they hadn't been discovered yet, And so penicillin was born. But the key is the researchers, right? Sir Alexander Fleming had to have the wisdom to uh, what they say in football, call an audible to be able to change your way of thinking, to be open to observations that don't fit your narrative and to say, well, look, heck, we've been studying bacteria, but look at this. What we really need to be studying is a mold, and figure out how, you know, something that this mold makes, some byproduct of this mold's growth uh, is going to change the practice of medicine forever. And so it did. And where would we be without antibiotics and the accidental discovery of penicillin? And how that discovery would have been missed if the researchers involved didn't have an open mind and say, gosh, we got we to change our focus. We got to change it right here and now. Look at this culture dish. This changes everything. But the point is, without that open-mindedness, without that ability to sort of change directions quickly, it might have been missed. They might have looked at it and said, ah, bad culture plate, tossed it in the trash. And all of medical history, perhaps even the history of mankind, period, would have been forever changed. For the worse, presumably. So you might say, oh, that's great, Mike. That's wonderful, Dr. K. You, You found an example, but you had to go back practically 100 years to make your point. So maybe maybe you're full of it. Maybe that you know that, that that doesn't make much sense to have to go back that far. Well, let's go back. Let's go back 18 years. Maybe maybe you're a little com- more comfortable with something a little more recent. Now, docs in the audience, don't ruin it for everybody else because you're going to recognize this story about a drug called sildenafil which was initially studied by its maker for the treatment of high blood pressure and chest pain for angina, right? Chest pain due to heart disease. This drug was put into clinical trials with human beings with the intent of treating hypertension and chest pain. Well, it turns out that for hypertension and chest pain, the drug didn't work so well. Numbers didn't bear out. Incidents of angina didn't bear out. And so about the time they say, okay, you know what? Another failed drug. Right There's lots of them we never hear about. So let's get all the drugs back from the research subjects and uh, call it a day, right? Well, not so fast. It turns out that the research subjects, the older men, the ones who typically have hypertension and chest pain, really didn't want to give the drug back. They wanted to keep the drug. Why did they want to keep the drug? Well, because of a particular certain side effect, which shall we say popped up, which helped them. With their romantic lives, they didn't want to give the drug back because it improved sexual performance. It treated erectile dysfunction. Totally unexpected for a drug that was initially conceived to treat hypertension and chest pain. What's the name of the drug? We all know it as doxas, Viagra. But again, one of the most pivotal drugs of the millennium the turn of the millennium uh, to treat one of the most common problems that mankind faces and uh, it still holds the record as the drug with the most sales in its first year some two billion dollars and not only did it help the problem itself it's also raised awareness that erectile dysfunction impotence if you will can be an early indicator of heart disease and so that's become a good flag for, for folks to look for that if someone comes to the doctor with difficulties with, with that particular problem, you better check out the heart. You better check out the arteries going to your brain because you may have bigger problems than just erectile dysfunction like a heart attack or a stroke coming down the road. So we're going to take these two historical examples in the next segment and talk about how those apply, believe it or not, to health information technology. You are listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctors' Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, Every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. The Docs
2: for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation nation and join the fight today thank you this is america's webradio.com the best in chat radio designed just for you
0: hello again and welcome back you are listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Karuchek. Thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, today's topic is interoperability. Long word, sounds kind of boring, but actually within health IT, uh, interoperability is a pretty big deal, and it's right now the thing that folks are talking about within health information technology. If you're not talking about interoperability, you are missing the boat, and meetings in health IT everywhere from right here in Atlanta to Washington DC to Cleveland Ohio uh, healthcare IT people are coming together and they're having big meetings where the entire topic of the meeting is interoperability uh, there's a group of health IT engineers that met just last week in Cleveland they called their meeting the Connectathon Right to talk about connectivity, to talk about interoperability. So everywhere folks are jumping on this interoperability bandwagon and and trying to join the narrative that health IT is advancing and try to have a part in this big perceived movement for whatever it's worth. Uh, This kind of started maybe a couple of years ago when our own uh, Atlanta, Georgia's uh, Phil Gingry I uh, made some comments at an energy and commerce meeting in 2014 and really kind of drew some lines in the sand between the government and some of the larger health IT vendors. So listen to this.
3: If the June 2014 RAND report is true, uh, we have been subsidizing systems that block information instead of allowing uh, for information transfers, uh, which was never the intent of the statute. Uh, it may be time that this committee take a closer look at the practices of vendor companies in this space, given the possibility that fraud may be perpetrated on the American taxpayer.
0: So he kind of draws a line in the sand and, and, and brings to light the fact that this entire meaningful use program that we have wrestled with for, low these five or six years now really didn't push interoperability the way some people thought it should. You know, If you buy into the idea – and we don't, and I certainly don't – but if you buy into the idea that government should be controlling the narrative with legislation, then the meaningful use program did not emphasize interoperability enough. They were so much about putting EMRs into physicians' offices and into physicians' hospitals that they didn't really care what the EMR was doing. They didn't care if it was good or not. They didn't care if it addressed – Issues like usability and interoperability, that didn't matter. We don't care. We're just going to put something out there. We don't care if it's good. We don't care if it's not. And we've talked at length on this show under my guidance about how that has been a really, really bad thing because now we have 80% of physicians using systems which generally stink. And we've talked about that at length. Today, we're talking about how the interoperability issue plays into that and how, as Gingrie pointed out in making those comments, that, yeah, we've got companies out there. And he did mention Epic by name. I didn't put that in the soundbite, but he mentioned Epic by name. They're certainly not the only one that has made a ton of money off of the meaningful use incentives, and yet – they're fighting this interoperability thing, or at least they're not cooperating as much as some people think that they should. So let's connect the dots here. We have an interoperability issue that has raised issues, has raised some tempers, has raised uh, some controversy and some conflict. And we have some of the historical lessons that I was talking about in the first segment from the discovery of penicillin to the discovery of Viagra. And the, one of the common threads across these historical stories is that if you are doing research, some of the most important experiments you will ever do are the ones that yield completely unexpected results. Right, Sir Alexander didn't expect to find a mold growing in his petri dish, and the folks researching sildenafil did not expect to find that a drug conceived for hypertension and angina was going to fix erectile dysfunction. But the point is, if you're not open-minded to the unexpected data coming through, then you are not going to pick up on some of the most important work that you may do in your entire career. And I think this lesson applies well to the interoperability concept that is being pushed by the health IT community right now because I was witness to one of these experiments, if you will, and I don't even think they knew that the folks holding this particular meeting I'm talking about, I don't think they even knew that they were running an experiment. So let me grab these papers here. I've got to turn around and find this stuff i got on the back desk. Okay, here we go. So here's another meeting that that uh, I attended. This is uh, the Health IT Leadership Summit. This was in no- Atlanta last November, November 3rd, 2015. Um, it's a great meeting. So before I start talking about things that happened at this meeting and things that didn't and what we can learn from it, again, the unexpected results of an experiment, if you will, I, let me just say up it front, it's a great group. I'm on the Health Advisory Board for the Technology Association of Georgia. Uh, these are great people. It's a privilege to be on the board and, and the, the observations I have here aren't meant to diss anyone. It's just meant to say, look, you, you gotta learn from what's around you, even if it doesn't fit the narrative that you bring to the table. So like some of these other meetings I'm talking about, this entire Health IT Leadership Summit meeting, it was called Connecting Healthcare, Making IT Work for You. So again, we're in this connectivity, we're in this interoperability theme, and the entire meeting was devoted to interoperability. So what sort of observations were there to be made at this meeting. Well, the first observation was it it, it took 90 minutes into the meeting, right? It started at 8 o'clock on November 3rd. It wasn't until about 9.30 that doctors and patients even got mentioned in the dialogue. There's so much about the 50-foot stuff. Doctors and patients, patients and docs, never got mentioned. And when they did get mentioned an hour and a half into the meeting, it was sort of brief. It was sort of in passing. And that was kind of the mood for the entire day was that, Doctors and patients are an afterthought. Everything else that it terms to the nuts and bolts of health information technology you know took center stage and that 's not entirely bad. Uh, this was not a meeting for physicians, but it does give some insights into the emphasis, but even that isn 't what i 'm here to really talk about. The first meeting after the introductory keynote addresses by government officials, as you would expect, uh, they had a panel. And the panel included some pretty heavy hitters in healthcare, And I'm flipping through the program here to get the names. But, yeah, here's the panel discussion. So we had folks from Greenway Health, which you all know, Relay Health. Uh, we had folks from uh, from Epic and from Cerner. So we had somebody from Epic, somebody from Cerner, somebody from Greenway, three great big health IT EMR vendors and Relay Health, and a moderator that was a CEO from another health IT company. So the moderator gets up and says, okay, show of hands. Now, this is an audience of about 1,000. Show of hands, how many folks in this 1,000-member audience believe that we are facing a crisis? And that was the word he used, a crisis in interoperability. We had about four or five hands go up out of 1,000. Right. Ten hands would be one percent. So you're talking one half of one percent of a very large health IT community from Atlanta, Georgia, which is regarded by many as the mecca of health IT companies, personnel, training, what have you. So should be a pretty representative sample. And we're looking at about one half of one percent of those folks think that we have some kind of crisis in health IT. So that's an interesting piece of data. Then he asked a second question. He said, if we have a crisis in health IT, how many people think that the right government policy will fix the problem? Now, we had a few more hands with that. We had about 10, but that got us to maybe a whopping 1% of the audience. So then the panel discussion begins. And it turns out that none of the panelists felt that health IT interoperability was a crisis. They all agreed it was an issue. They agreed it was something that should be talked about. But I don't think the audience, neither the audience nor the panelists in this very large room of very smart people coming from one of the epicenters of health information technology, Atlanta, Georgia, the southeast, really had a lot to say about interoperability or had a lot to say about how this was some sort of crisis and that we were, nothing was going to move forward until we somehow dramatically fixed this issue. So to me, that's the mold growing in the staphylococcal Petri dish, right? That's where you have to look at that data and say, Hmm, well, that's funny. How come we expected bacteria to grow, but they're not. How come we expected uh, an entire audience of health IT people attending a meeting whose theme was interoperability, right? They showed up at the meeting. One would think that they had, that they bought into the concept, but it turns out they really don't. Very interesting indeed. So the second part of this meeting that I want to talk about is late in the day, right? I talked about to you what happened first thing in the day. So let's talk about what's happening late in the day. Well, late in the day, they sort of had their token doctor panel, at 4.30 in the afternoon. And those of you who go to meetings, and that's probably most of you doctors or not, you all know what happens to meetings by 4.30 in the afternoon. Well, everybody's pretty much gone. All right. They've had all the student sections. They've had all of the, uh, the meat is pretty much done. But at 4.25 in the afternoon in Ballroom A, off to the side, where nobody can find it, they had a panel of physicians. There's something novel for a health IT meeting. Have a panel of physicians. Well, but to their credit, they did it. So again, I don't want to diss too much, but you know, and they did have a physician panel, so they do get credit for that. But let's look at the title of the panel discussion. Uh, The physicians will love this. Improving physician engagement through interoperability, understanding the provider's perspective. So, okay. Not a bad title. We had a moderator and three panelists. The moderator, uh, was the chief medical information officer of one of the major healthcare systems in Atlanta. Uh, the panelists, two of them were regular practicing docs. I think that's great. And one was a, a chief information officer of another major healthcare system in the Atlanta, North Georgia area. So, fine. Despite the lateness of the hour, the session was well attended. So that's the first observation is there were probably at least a 100 people in the room. Now, I ask you, those of you who go to meetings like this, how many people have a 100 attendees in the room for a 425 lecture? So I think that really speaks to how important people, the rank and file of health IT, buy into the fact that doctors need to be involved. But here's the big observation is that they were – charged with the task of talking about interoperability as it relates to providers. And they began the discussion with an honest, good-faith effort of of trying to talk about that. But it turns out that the topic of interoperability lasted about five minutes of a one-hour discussion after some token comments about interoperability and some pre-fabricated prepared questions by the moderator, which, again, that's what moderators are supposed to do. So, you know, no, no disrespect meant there. But the conversation drifted to the things that providers really feel about health information technology, things like the notes generated by EMRs are unreadable, things like meaningful use stinks, it gets in the way, it doesn't improve patient care, it hurts patient care, And it got into a real sort of bellyache session about the things that are really wrong with health information technology. And none of the honest, spontaneous comments that occupied the entire panel after the first five minutes, none of them had to do with interoperability. So we will pick this up at the beginning of the third segment. You are listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio.
3: You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
0: Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Karuchak. Thanks very much for sticking with us today. Uh, We are talking about a riddle this morning, and the riddle is, what do a petri dish full of mold and a health IT meeting have in common. Right here it is again. What does a petri dish full of mold and a health IT meeting have in common? Well, what they have in common is data that you didn't expect. Right, they have in common what uh, what you might describe as uh, uh, an unexpected finding. Right, some of the most uh, important experiments that have ever been run in the history of medicine have to do with. Um, those results which are done, which are unexpected, right? Just like Sir Alexander Fleming discovered mold in his petri dish way back in 1929, which only because he had an open mind led to the discovery of penicillin. We have a healthcare IT meeting that took place in Atlanta that was dedicated, like so many health IT meetings are, to the concept of interoperability in healthcare. And it turns out the opinions of the audience. The opinions of the health IT panelists and indirectly the opinions of the doctors on another panel all suggest the same thing, that interoperability as it is defined by the government, by the health IT vendors, by the health IT industry is not exactly a definition that people are buying into. Right. The idea that we would have this universal healthcare record, which gets bounced from doctor to hospital to other healthcare system, and keeps getting added to, right? This so-called longitudinal healthcare record. I don't understand that term. Right? What's a longitudinal healthcare record? All healthcare records are longitudinal, right? I see a patient in January. I take notes. I document in January so that they, when they come back in June, I remember what we did. Right? That's the fundamental purpose of a healthcare record. That's longitudinal at least with respect to time, which is what I assume they're talking about. So it's like we talked about earlier in the show. The more you try to dig into the meat of what the health IT industry is writing, the more it kind of vaporizes right in front of you because it's all these ethereal concepts like patient-centered care. Well, of course, care is patient-centered. Duh, that's not new. Doctors have been practicing patient-centered care for decades. Now, I'm not saying we practiced it perfectly all the time or that we are without fault, but this concept that the patient should be at the center of everything, they act like this is something new. Well, guess what? Among physicians, it's not. That's what we've been doing all along. So we have this definition of interoperability, which everything that's old is new again and doesn't really say very much. And as a result, guess what? Even inside the healthcare industry, people are not buying in. And that's the mold in the healthcare industry's Petri dish. Right now is that here's some data y'all didn't expect. So what are you going to do? Are you going to act on it? Are you going to say, hey, we need to change what we're talking about? We need to change the narrative to something that sells. We need to change this dialogue. Well, I don't know if they will or not. The problem is when you have big corporations and big money behind this, you know, the narrative is is funded. And when the narrative is funded by folks who have a particular financial interest in a particular message or a particular narrative – That is very difficult to change. And as Gingrich's speech to the Energy and Commerce Committee in 2014 also points out that this – concept of interoperability well why can't we get computers to talk to each other this this does sell to folks that are sort of outside of of the field and uh, you know somebody who gets on the evening news and sort of says that as a soundbite well why don't the doctor's computer talk to the hospital's computer and you're you know joe joe public making dinner and kind of half listening with one ear to the television set you can sort of listen with half an ear and go oh yeah Oh, that makes sense. So it's easy for a politician to get behind a podium and make this concept of interoperability sell. Except that for folks who are in the know, whether you're in health IT or you are a physician, that definition of interoperability doesn't work. It doesn't sell. So why don't we come up with another one and why don't we spend the next few minutes talking about the type of interoperability that does make sense? And to me, as somebody who has been using an electronic medical record for more than 10 years and struggling with the concept of how to leverage an electronic medical record to do what in medicine we call the scut work, right? The stuff that really shouldn't require human intervention but continues to be something we have to pay people to do, like fill out forms and fax things and all of this. But, but here's the kicker is the stuff that we're faxing and the, the forms that we're filling out really don't have to do with the transfer of existing medical records from one facility to another, right? Because that's what health IT is talking about is we want your office note to be in one place, but we want it to be in 10 other places altogether. That's not the problem. That is not the problem. The problem is workflow, right? Gets back to this concept I've talked about before, which is, sadly physicians don't know much about right we spend so much time learning about health and disease and drugs and operations and that sort of stuff it kind of takes up all the time you have over four years of medical school plus at least three years of residency maybe up to 10 you're pretty much occupied learning about why people get sick and how to make them better as opposed to these sort of business communications aspects which have taken their rightful place as being just about as important so, what is it that we're doing? Well, I just have to give you an example. There's really no other way to do it. Let's say that um, I see a patient and they have a cough, and I want to get a chest X-ray. So, in the old paper record days, what would happen? Well, I'd have to write with a thing in the with a pen or a pen, pencil in there, a pen in the chart note, say we're going to get a chest X-ray. Then I would turn to my medical assistant and say we need to get a chest X-ray. My medical assistant would turn around and pull a form. Right, And we still have, even after 10 years of EMR, we still have banks of racks in every exam room and every nurse's station with blank forms that we have to pay a human being to stop what they're doing, turn away from the patient, stop paying attention to the patient, and fill out these darn forms. So just to get that chest x-ray takes five or ten minutes of work, which adds up over hundreds of patients that we have to fill out a form now that was the old paper chart days now you'd think now heck you know you've had an emr for 10 years that should be automated right well it's not and and that's the problem and and when i talk about connectivity when i talk about interoperability my vision and the vision of any provider i think who's has had the time to stop and actually think about it is that we need the computers to use interoperability, to use connectivity, to help us get the work done. right? The vision with an information technology system is when I want that chest X-ray, all I should have to do is click a box, chest X-ray. Right? Maybe a couple of other boxes was where do I want them to have it done, facility A, facility B. But once I check that box, everything else should happen in the background. Right. That's the back end functionality, the back end connectivity that an EMR should have, but doesn't. Because even after 10 years of an EMR and all the effort that we've put in, right, mainly because all the effort lately has been with government compliance, meaningful use programs, all that, that occupies all my time. I don't have time to build back end connectivity so that when I click that button that says chest x-ray, the chest x-ray actually gets ordered automatically. Right. If I click that button and sign the order, that should be it give the patient some information and say, this facility will be calling you to schedule the the x-ray. You'll come back in and see me in a week or so, and we'll review the results and make sure you don't have pneumonia or lung cancer or something like that. But that should all happen automatically. And even after 10 years of EMR, it doesn't happen automatically. We still click the button, but we got to do the same thing that we did 20 years ago. Grab a form, fill it out with a pen, fax it with the chart note to the facility, And again, that doesn't sound like much when you're only talking about doing it once, but I see close to 30 patients in a clinic day. And if you multiply the dozens and dozens of things that we do to treat people, it's a huge burden. It slows us down. It contributes to how much time patients have to wait to get seen. It contributes to the potential for errors when you're still doing things with pen and paper. Uh, It contributes to delays in care that they got to wait to get their study because we might not have time in real time between patients to fill all that stuff out. So it has to happen at the end of the day or it has to happen the next day or the day after. So I think it's about time that the health IT community pursues a useful, I don't want to say meaningful, that word is forever ruined in my vernacular, but a truly useful vision Of interoperability of connectivity that says, look, the priority is not top down. The priority is not that we have intact charts with completed tests and results running back and forth between emergency rooms and doctors offices and hospitals. Not that that's not useful at some level. It's just not the lowest hanging fruit. It's just not the most important thing. If we want to talk about efficiency, if we want to talk about bending the cost curve, if we want to talk about getting more work done and delivering more care with less cost, then we need a vision of the entire health IT community, but for today's discussion, the connectivity piece to say we need to get systems to connect to each other, not so much to pass intact records around, but to get the work done. I want to have a system that says, look, if I want lab results on a patient, once I click the button, that thing ought to operate like FedEx does, right? When you click a button to get a package delivered, right, it prints a label, you stick it to your package, FedEx shows up. It's all fairly impersonal, but it's extremely efficient, And so between the time I click the button that says chest x-ray and the time I got the patient face-to-face again in the office in the near future to talk about the results, between those two points, I want FedEx. I, I want something that is very efficient where all this back-end connectivity runs on its own just like it does when you're getting a package delivered. To me, that bends the cost curve down it increases quality it does all of these things that farzad Mostashari used to preach about about reducing paperwork reducing errors all this sort of you know visionary uh, you know utopic kind of stuff you might actually take a couple of significant steps towards actually getting there if the emphasis regarding interoperability were changed from a vision which does nothing more then move records around, right, this whole ethereal concept of patient-centered healthcare, care, which may be new to them, but it sure as heck isn't new to physicians, to change that vision, to turn it from something that's just something that a politician can sell easily on the evening news or the CEO of Epic or Cerner or Greenway or anyone else to something that actually works for doctors and for patients, So we've got about a minute left in this segment. I'm going to change gears here just a little bit. Um, There's a few sort of historical artifacts regarding this story about Alexander Fleming and penicillin, right? We talked about that in the first segment, I think, where we talked about his Petri dish that was supposed to have bacteria growing in it and turned out to have a chunk of mold growing in it. And where the mold was growing, no bacteria could grow. Uh, the article that I got was actually written by one of the folks who studied under Sir Alexander Fleming and so was a was a first-hand witness to the event, and uh, it is interesting that apparently he debunks the myth that uh, Alexander Fleming, Sir Fleming, had actually left a Petri dish open, right? Because that's what I had thought until I read this, that he had taken this culture dish with staff growing in it and had somehow inadvertently left it on a windowsill with the cover off. Well, this firsthand account says no, no self-respecting bacteriologist is going to leave a culture open to the air, especially in an open window. And oh, by the way, they got a picture of Alexander Fleming's workstation. And guess what? You can't even reach the window to get it open. You are listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us for segment four. Thank you.
1: This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings at
2: 9 o'clock for Medicine on Call. On Medicine on Call, we talk about more than medicine. It's about how to take control of your mind, body, and spirit.
3: You're listening to americaswebradio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
0: Welcome back. You are listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. This is your host, Dr. Mike Karuchak. Thank you very much for joining us for the fourth and final segment of today's show. We are very grateful that you have stuck with us for the duration. We are talking today about the unexpected. We're talking about those things that happen in your own life or your professional life uh, that can change or should change the way you think about things that you thought you had all figured out. And we started this discussion with a history lesson uh, from Sir Sir, uh, Sir Fleming, Sir Alexander Fleming, who uh, used a, a mishap in his laboratory back in 1929 to make one of the major discoveries of medicine in the 20th century, namely that of penicillin. Uh, we moved on to another example, a bit more contemporary, a bit more uh, relevant to everybody's life, which was the discovery of Viagra. And this was uh, a drug that was, of course, as we discussed something that was supposed to treat high blood pressure and chest pain due to heart disease it turns out it treats a different problem that has the same theme right erectile dysfunction same uh you know same problem lack of blood flow different part of the body turns out uh you know if those researchers hadn't been willing to change gears in the middle of their study uh then the world might have missed out on one of the most popular drugs uh, out there And then we moved on to a a more relevant example to health information technology, which was a meeting uh, that uh, took place in Atlanta and talked about what happened when an entire meeting, as so many health IT meetings are now, which was based on this concept of interoperability. It turns out the level of interest uh, and the level of alarm regarding interoperability, the ability of health information computers to talk to each other, it turns out that the uh, the faithful flock really doesn't think it's as big a problem as the intelligentsia does. So the question is, how will you handle the unexpected when it pops up in your world? Will you just curse your luck and move on? Or uh, do you turn an apparent disaster into a potential huge opportunity so with that thought we're going to move on to one more example uh, of something that's come out of the health it community and, and this has come from uh, from one of the big players this comes from the scripps uh, translational institute and this is a, um, a six-month study um, a prospective randomized trial right this is done exactly the way uh, experimental science is supposed to work right this is a prospective randomized trial of one hundred and sixty people who suffered from either um, high blood pressure or heart arrhythmias or diabetes, and they were given uh, state of the art technology in mobile health devices which if you had high blood pressure, was a, a wired, connected blood pressure cuff. You just push a button, takes your blood pressure, uploads it to your smartphone, then you have to upload it to an application, and there's this whole group of of doctors and nurses looking at this information as it's coming in every day and trying to intervene proactively in these patients' lives and try to reduce the number of hospital visits for urgent problems, and try to just improve overall level of health, improve blood pressure in people with hypertension, improve blood sugar levels and HbA1c levels in people who have diabetes to make heart arrhythmias behave themselves a bit more. Uh, And it turns out in the study that um, it was negative data. It turns out that all of these wonderful mobile devices, in the way this study was conducted, um, didn't make a difference, did not improve blood pressure level, did not improve blood pressure, uh, blood sugar control in diabetes, did not improve arrhythmias. In fact, the only improvement they were able to find in the study is that the folks using the high technology mobile health devices, home sensors, um, had an improved sense of their own health being their own responsibility. That's all we got out of it. Now, you might expect a, a critic of health IT like myself, in spite of the fact that we've had an EMR for 10 years longer than most, to have this aha moment, right? And that's aha. It doesn't uh, it doesn't fit your message. It doesn't fit your uh, narrative. Uh, it is another unexpected uh, result. And maybe this is something that you would say, well, that's, you know, you would expect them to curse their luck and move on, Um uh, but instead, that didn't happen. So, I, but I think this is a good thing. I'm not. I'm not leveraging this as some sort of a "ha, uh, I told you so" moment. In fact, uh, this study comes from somebody who historically I have not regarded as one of my favorite people. One, Dr. Eric Topol. Uh, a lot of people like him, and I understand that. And and I think I may like him a little bit more after this event. My issue with him goes back three or four years when he joined. Uh, the podium with then Director of HHS Kathleen Sibelius, and had some rather unsavory comments about his fellow physicians. I had a little issue with that, um, but that 's fine. you know the fact that that he had the guts and had the integrity and the honesty to publish a study, even though the results were probably not what he wanted or what he expected, um, I think he deserves credit for that. Uh, so maybe the chip on my shoulder I have regarding Dr. Topol is uh, is gone now, or at least it's a whole lot smaller, because it really does take guts to publish negative data, right? Publi- uh, studies are now funded by a lot of big money, and that big money is, is spending that money in order to advance their narrative, their dialogue. And so if Something comes out that doesn't support their narrative. Well, number one, that's bad. You better massage the data and make it support the narrative. Or two, don't publish it at all. And in this case, uh, Dr. Topol, to his credit, I really do admire him for this, uh, did neither and said, look, here's the results. They don't support our message. They don't support our dialogue. Now there's a lot of reasons that we're going to go into as to why that might be true, but, uh, but the point is he did it. And it caused a bit of uh, of a stir uh, in the uh, health information technology world. There was a lot of tweets going around and a lot of responses in and uh, the health information technology blogosphere, internet community, call it what you want. Um, but let's go through this because I think there's a lot to learn from a study like this. And uh, and I, I think I want to go through it. So, so step one, right, because these things get published in sort of the format of a peer-reviewed scientific paper. So they go through how did they find a, 160 patients to study for six months. And I think there are some very interesting numbers behind the numbers that I think we need to talk about. So the first thing is in order to get 160 volunteers for this study, they had to make invitations to 4,000 people. So out of 4,000 offers, they get 160 people. So 160 is 4% of 4,000. So they had a 4% response rate. Well, that's interesting, 4%. Where have I heard that number before, 4%? Oh, I know. That was the number of practices, medical practices, the percentage of medical practices in 2007 that had electronic medical records. It's that same 4%. So. I wonder if this doesn't mean, and again, just with two data points, you can't prove it, so this is conjecture, not conclusion, but I wonder if that means that when you introduce a new technology into a totally naive market, whether you're introducing electronic medical records to physicians coast to coast, or you're trying to introduce home monitoring technology to a group of patients with chronic disease, that you can count on that 4% floor. You'll get 4% of people who respond just because those are the people who are early adopters. Those are the people that will grab onto something even if it hasn't been proven or tested. And they're willing to take that risk. And that probably sounds about right. I think that's that's probably a decent number that you can expect. But here's the other take-home lesson. Those, and this is relevant to this paper and it's relevant to electronic medical records and physicians' offices, but that 4% of folks are self-selected over-motivated people, right? We call them early adopters. And we know that early adopters are not the same as other folks. We know that their tolerance of problems is bigger. We know that they're willing to go through more crap to get to a result and be one of the first to get there. Um, But I think the biggest problem in interpreting the data from this paper, uh, and I think some of this actually supports health IT. I think that the the, the 4% of people Uh, That self-selected for this home monitoring technology for their diabetes, high blood pressure, you know, heart trouble are not the same as other folks and probably would do well whether they had technology or not. So I think by using a self-selected group, I think Topol and his colleagues probably shot themselves in the foot because the group of folks who volunteered to use home monitoring health information technology are probably the people who need it the least. Because they're going to do well no matter what. And I think if you delve into their data, and I'm not going to torture you with numbers today, but I think those are the folks who um, would do well no matter what. So it's a very high bar to try to clear to prove the technology helps. So another point, going to move on to something else here, is that um, there's a lot of narrative and a lot of dialogue saying, well, if you give patients home monitoring technology, you are going to data overload those patients. And it's going to actually cause the cost of their care to go up, not down, because every little glitch, every little change that, that they're seeing day to day that without the home monitoring, they wouldn't see uh, that uh, they're going to overutilize because of that. That turned out not to be the case. There was no overutilization here. Uh, there was no bump. You know, the, the folks who used home monitoring technology were not any more expensive, nor were they any less expensive to take care of. And uh, I, I think that's, that's fascinating, and, and, it's, and it's another reason. It's another testament to the fact that when you put human beings and technology together, you never, ever, ever know exactly what's going to happen. Next point, and this is the criticism of the paper because I, I don't understand why their, their evaluation of their outcomes, their endpoints was so, so crude – Right. The major thing that they used to compare the group that had home monitoring with the group that you know their hypertension, diabetes, arrhythmias was managed in the conventional way, their main analysis was cost of claims. Cost of claims and number of hospital visits over a six-month period. Well, first thing, as has been widely said, it's not an idea, but six months is way too short an interval. You need a longer interval than that. That's the first thing. The second thing is... Why was why did they limit themselves so much to claims data, and, and why did they limit their clinical data evaluation to just improvement in blood pressure or improvement in blood sugar control when there's so much more that you could look at? I would love to see whether or not the folks that had the worst sugar control were uh, got more improvement than the people whose blood sugar was pretty good to begin with. So without getting too lost in the minutiae, I think the biggest shortcoming of, of their study, and I and I think they could have made their paper look better for the for the health IT narrative, ironically, is if they had done a bit more sophisticated and a bit more aggressive evaluation of their outcomes. I think they had a problem with that. And then there was a few other uh, comments in the paper that I was like, I almost laughed. This is kind of some stuff that came out of the conclusions of the paper. Um, they, They said they had numerous challenges setting this whole system up, right? For these 160 patients, they had to have a monitor at home that was sophisticated enough to, you know, monitor their blood pressure every day, monitor their blood sugar every day. And these were, these were not passive devices. These were active devices. Now, what do I mean by that? Um, a passive device is like the gas gauge in your car. Okay. Every minute that you're driving, it's that needle on the gauge or whatever is telling you how many miles you got to empty, you know, whether you're empty or full or, you know, wherever the needle falls. It's on and it's running every time. Now, compare that to if you had to check your gas in your car by sticking a stick down in the tank like a dipstick. That would be, you know, active. I mean, you've got to go out of your way to do it. So, you know, another problem with the study is. You know, what happens when the sensors are more efficient, right? The technology is already better now than it was between 2013 and 2014 when they did the study. But in any case, I'm talking too long. We are out of time. Uh, Thank you very much for uh, listening to us uh, today. You have been listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio.
3: You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.